Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this passage, but others are not. But it's kind of, I think you could describe it as the theological explanation for the Christmas story. And it goes like this, set in a context. Of course, the Philippian church, the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians there who are having some difficulty getting along with each other. The whole notion of peace and love, of course, enters the picture. Philippians 2 verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ and any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is like the background or the theological, the concept uh, explanation of what happened at the Christmas story. And you see that it goes on to talk about how Jesus lived as a human in this world and identified with us, walked a mile in our shoes, and then died for us on the cross. That's the story in a nutshell. And this gives the reason for it, that Jesus, out of love and compassion, wanted to be the bridge. Now, Paul, when he writes about this, he's simply using it as the background for how Christians ought to behave and relate to each other. Why you should be able to live with people that don't necessarily appeal to you, tolerate them at minimum, but even love them in spite of themselves at maximum, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus, after all, according to this explanation and according to the rest of the story and Jesus' own explanation of it, Jesus wasn't sitting up in heaven and saying to the Father, I think I'm bored. Daddy, I think I'm bored, and I need to go have some fun and an adventure, and I need some friends because there's no friends up here. That's not exactly the story of the gospel of Jesus. This is a plan devised by God the Father in conjunction with the Holy Spirit and the Son to work out a plan, a way of bridging the gap between God and us. Now, God wants the fellowship with us but it's not as if God lacked for anything and needed us it was strictly a, uh, a statement of love and compassion the word agape love is often used in conjunction with this it's a New Testament word Greek word agape or agape which has that special significance as love for you initiating action on your behalf non-productive in terms of my own benefit but it's for you I think parents understand this maybe more than anybody which is why 
the uh, story of Jesus coming to earth, I'm pretty sure, included the advent, the baby in the manger. Because parents get this, that their children really don't consciously give back anything. But they don't consciously give back anything when they're babies. They, uh, they're there. They're just there. And they just respond according to whatever their needs mean and whatever it means to be human in a baby form. But they don't think about, how can I make my mother feel good or my daddy feel good? It, but the parents do this all the time. This is why uh, various forms of child abuse we find so repugnant because the very nature of the role of being a parent is protective and giving and, and the beneficial to the child. And the child is no way to pay this back, at least not as long as they're a child. They, they, it's strictly your responsibility. And as a human race, we understand this. And not just us. Animals understand this too about their own children. This is their job to protect them and to train them. And they take this role seriously. And when something goes wrong with that, we have reason to be a little angry and upset about the way these totally dependent children are being treated. And that's the nature of God's love. This was God's initiating a bridge between us and him. He sent it from his side because we can't get there. If you're out in a, in a boat and you see somebody out there drowning... You can't uh, really expect the drowning person to save themselves when you're in the boat. It's your job to go out to them, reach out your hand, and pull them in. There's nothing they can do about it. If you're in a boat and you want to drive the boat away and let them drown, you can do that. But they got no control because they're in a state of drowning, of need. That's what this story is about, why the Apostle Paul puts it in this way, that Jesus came to earth, not just in the coming as a baby. I find it uh, marginally insulting. Uh, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Really, is it that bad to be hum a human? Well, actually, you do know that the expression man, although he was male, uh, that's not really the implication here. It's anthropos. The Greek word anthropos is used, not the word for man versus woman. Being found as a human, as a, as a, as, as a, a, a male he was, but more importantly a human being, that is kind of humbling for God. And he's, it says specifically, the explanation Paul is giving for it here relies on two things. Number one, he's in the form of God, morphe. You know this from, if you've studied your geology, morphic rocks and uh, morphe is a word that gets applied to all kind of things related to form. Uh, things, uh, the, the form changes in some things and that's the word that it comes from. Being in the form of God, he didn't think it was, it wouldn't have been robbery for him to attempt to be God because he was already there. But he took on the form of a human being and lived as a full-blooded human amongst us. But the other important uh, statement being made here is that he emptied himself. You may be familiar with the term kenosis. Kenosis uh, is a word that implies just exactly that. It's used in a variety of forms in daily life as well. Uh, but it, in medical term, it empties 
It, it's, uh, he, he emptied out the privileges of who he was and where he was. He gave it away and took on this form. Voluntarily, by his own initiative, he did this. But one other thing that he did was for 33 years, lived amongst us and understood us, learned to understand us. And that's what I want to look at for the rest of this passage here, Matthew chapter 4. So if you go to Matthew, if you're using your Pew Bible, page 683. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, talks about the temptation of Jesus. This took place, context is important, in the way this story transpired or this event transpired. It's right after Jesus' baptism. So it would have been an exhilarating time. His public coming out as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, uh, with the baptism. But just before he started his public ministry, there was a testing that took place. The temptation of Jesus, Matthew 4, verse 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now one reason why this story appears in the location in Matthew is important because Matthew is the one of the four gospel accounts who made every effort, hundreds of, literally hundreds of references in the book of Matthew to relate what was happening to Jesus to the Old Testament prophecies. But not just overt prophecies, but the very events. We've been looking at the book of Exodus, this story, and all of these things that Jesus went through in the wilderness uh, took place in Exodus. And the responses, the quotes, all come from the book of Deuteronomy. Meaning, Jesus is intentionally uh, using things that everybody there knew how to use. And the story is told to us in such a way that implied this is God at work in the world with his people. And this is the pattern. So we're being clued in to look for patterns when we see a story that uses patterns that were already in place. And verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Ah, this is, uh, remember, when we were talking about angels last week, the devil here, not Jesus, but the devil is quoting from Psalm 91 uh, that we looked at last week. He, he's, he's quoting a passage of scripture, which is a good reminder that the devil can use scripture too. Remember, with the story of the wise men, we saw that Herod professed to want to worship the baby Jesus, but his true intent was to go find him and kill him. And the same is true of Satan and the pattern of those who are working against the cause of Christ or the light in the world. They can use scripture. In fact, I think some of the most vile people that I have ever known in my life in ministry were actually quite good at throwing around Bible verses. You may know that uh, sexual predators frequently use Bible verses to abuse children because it sounds like God talking. 
Well, there it is. The devil used the scripture. So we need to know God's voice, not just the verse. I want to say that again because I think that's important. We need to know God's voice, not just the verse. All of the cults, American cults, even ones that existed before this, from the beginning of the church, used scripture as the basis for their veering off the tracks. They simply gave meaning to isolated passages that don't fit the nature of God in the larger context of scripture. We're listening for the voice of God, not just the verse of God. I think that's important when you listen to preaching or do Bible study or anything like that. Do you hear the voice of God in this? I have, uh, over the years, become aware of uh, some people when they go to church and they listen to the sermon. They listen with a critical ear or a Pharisee ear. Well, this doesn't really apply to me. And, boy, he said that wrong, or, boy, he got that fact wrong, and kind of things. And I know, what are you even doing here? When I preach, or anybody preaches in this pulpit, the purpose is for God's word to be conveyed to this congregation. And that's it. The preacher really isn't relevant to the mission. It's like when we sing songs and worship. It's not about the musician. It's about God. It's intended to be a conveyance of God's presence to us and us into God's presence. And the same is true of God's word. And that's an important way to keep from getting led astray by the fakes and the phonies. Yeah, they can throw out Bible verses. But do you hear the voice of God in this? Do you hear the themes of God? Do you hear the nature of God in this expression of Scripture? Well, Jesus answers in verse 7. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So there's the bigger issue. This is about God, and, and he's, the devil quoted God's promise, and Jesus is simply responding with other scripture, and this is from Deuteronomy, uh, that don't put God to the Remember in the wilderness they tested God all the time by complaining and uh, all of the things they did. Uh, and uh, Moses is reminding them in Deuteronomy, don't put the Lord God to your test. Uh, just uh, stop. You did enough of that. Now you know it's him. And uh, you can walk with him. That's the bigger picture. And, and verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Ah, now we get to the real point. Now it's not just test God, do this, make food when you're hungry. Now it's, let's get right to the point here. I want you to worship me instead of God. That's exactly the mission in the long run. And whether it's just first, distract us, cause doubt, or get us focused on other things, the end result is really only one thing. We end up worshiping the other God. The one God or the other God. That's the bottom line. And Satan is finally to that real point. If you'll bow down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. 
The Luke version adds one line there that sometimes is worth pointing out. To come back, the devil left him to come back a later time. In other words, as long as we're in this world, and as long as Jesus was in this world, he suffered temptation. Now, when Jesus suffered temptation, it was a lot of of the same principles that we deal with, but not the same ideas, or the same problems, or the same circumstances. But the scripture is clear on this, that Jesus lived as a real, full-blooded human being in this world. And that's why when he went to the cross on our behalf, it was beneficial. But not only that, When as the head of the church, he promises to help us, send his spirit and teach us and help us, we know that he understands. James brings us out that don't say when you're tempted that it's God tempting you to sin. He says God can't do that. That's not his nature. God can test you for sure. But tempting you to sin is not what God wants. He's not sticking his foot out to trip you as you walk by. Satan wants to do that to you but you've got Jesus and you've got the tools that Jesus is teaching his followers to use focus on God the real God focus on the scripture as the tool as the sword and you'll be fine not only did Jesus identify with us when he went to the cross he identifies with us today right today he understands God understands what you're going through So let's uh, draw attention to some principles here, takeaways for life. Number one, the provisions of Jesus for our salvation is an elegant solution to a complex problem which needed solving only once. An elegant solution. Do you know that term? If you have studied math or know or remember when you studied math, If you're as old as knowing that song by Joe South, you might not remember when you studied math. But if you remember from your math, there are solutions and then there are elegant solutions. An elegant solution doesn't mean it's pretty or dressed up in a dress or bow or whatever. It just means that it works. Dave's smiling at me over here. He teaches math. But uh, uh, it's, it's a solution that works, solves a problem. Uh, and this is a good illustration, not only solves the problem, but does it in the shortest possible way with all of the answer in place. Now, you can solve problems mathematically. Um, I remember in a math class many years ago, um, sitting in the back of the room, and uh, after the teacher would put his problem on the board, I uh, once in a while would raise my hand and give him the answer, and then he'd say, how did you get that? I said, I have no idea. And he said, well, (laughs) that's a problem. (laughs) Because math is not just getting to the answer. Math is figuring out the logic of the problem and getting to the answer. Now, the elegant solution that Jesus provided in what he did was that he dealt with the sin problem in such a way that left our dignity intact and God's dignity and justice intact God could have dealt with the sin problem very simply right after Adam and Eve sinned or right after the people of Israel got out of out of Egypt and Moses said to God on one occasion why don't you just zap these people and I'll go with them I'm tired of this I can't deal with it they're worthless they're sinners 
Right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God could have done a very simple thing. He could have nuked the place. Could have got rid of all of it because there was sin in it now. It's tainted. And he could do that with you too. He could take your life. And you would be done with that stupid, destructive habit you've got. Or that attitude that you've got that's rotting your soul from the inside out and damaging the people around you because it's a grudge and it's a sin or whatever it is. He could do that to you. And that would solve the problem. But it's not an elegant solution because it doesn't answer the rest of it. The part of God's character that's grace and love and compassion and respect for the boundaries that he created us with which going along with the subject of boundaries implies that we can do the wrong thing. But God provided a solution here that leaves him just and righteous and the ruler of the universe, but also loving and kind and extending his hand out to us in compassion and love. And that's what Jesus did. Number two. God loves you the way you are, but too much to leave you that way. Don't confuse love with low standards. We sometimes have a difficulty with this problem. Well, if we believe in love and grace, then why are you talking about sin? I'm sorry, I believe in love and grace because sin is real. Without sin and grace and love, sin is going to kill eternally. But if there is no sin to recognize, deal with, or change, or repent of, then where's the love and grace even necessary? It simply goes with the turf. Jesus did not do what he did, take on the form of a human, resist Satan in the wilderness, and go to the cross, just because God was attempting to apologize for being an old grouch. Well, I I guess I made a big mistake here. All these laws, these standards, and the word sin. I hereby remove it, and Jesus died. Stupid Jesus died just to prove that I was wrong. Really? That's your God? These things are so real, it took the Son of God's life. Don't make light of it. Not only do they destroy him, but they destroy you. And the people around you. That's why Jesus did what he did. The elegant solution. Number three. Jesus knows and understands our weaknesses and problems. He's there to help. Well that's the purpose of the story of Jesus in the wilderness. To let us know that he's been there. Done that. And he found a way out. He found a way out you'll notice not by exerting his own unique nature and powers but by referring to scripture and saying, God said that's wrong. I'm not doing it. You can do that. What keeps you from doing that? God said that's wrong. I'm doing it. You're not Jesus. Of course you're not Jesus. But you got the same scripture. you got the same values. you got the same God in your corner. It can be done. Number four, doing the right thing often costs us in the short term. But God honors it. In the long term. You know, uh, Jesus actually did die. We celebrate this once a month in the Lord's Supper. He actually died. That's why we do it the way we do it. These elements uh, ordained by Jesus to be in perpetuity. We do this because it reminds us that Jesus was real. 
in a place and a time, and he actually did a whole body, spirit, and soul engagement of empathy and love on our behalf. And he died for us. And that was the end. That was the end or it wasn't real. But God raised him from the dead. God the Father raised him from the dead and said, that's satisfactory. I am satisfied. This is good. I release, hereby release those who wish from the power and bondage of sin. Because Jesus stood in their, their place. It was the real thing. But in the short haul, he went to the grave. He died. Uh, one expression implies that he went all the way into hell with the dead. I don't know, you can overwork that. But nevertheless, I think the going down before going up principle is fundamental who, who Jesus is. I mean, that passage actually says he humbled himself to be born a man. I, you know, notice it. He could have, could have found a lot of ways to come and do this. He could have come to earth as, he could have come to earth as uh, Mickey Mouse and conveyed a, Snoopy, conveyed a good message. Lots of ways, and lots of people would have liked him and saw him on TV. He could have come to earth as anybody, but he came to earth as a baby, humbled himself and went through the whole process of what you went through. So, cost him. Not only did it cost him separation from the Father, it cost him identification with our weaknesses, cost him identification with our failures, our sins. It cost him all of those things, real sacrifice, in order to redeem us, to get us back, to build a relationship with God, the righteous judge of the universe. So that passage in Philippians 1 says, So God thereby honored, therefore honored him, and gave him a name above every other name, so that this is the center of human history. It turns out it is, even for those who shake their fist at God. Turns out Jesus and Jesus' birth is the center of human history. Pretty hard to get around. God actually did what he said he was going to do. And number five, the drowning person can only get into the boat with help from someone already in it. Might be you today. Ah, there are people out there who need us. Maybe there are people that you don't even find attractive or want in your circle of friends or in your home or in your life. Some of these people might even be family members. You're just happy to not see them again for another year. Or they're your neighbors. Or they're people of a different race and lifestyle. And anything that you can imagine that might stand in a way. Jesus told a parable called the prodigal son. In which one of the sons went away and squandered everything. It was a total failure in life. And he eventually has to go back to his father and beg for mercy. But the elder son, who was always good, did the right thing, went to church every week, all of his life, just couldn't handle that. Where's my reward, he says, because I have done all the good stuff, the right things. And that guy, my brother, he went and squandered everything. Well, there really is an attitude issue there, isn't there? And I think that it would be dishonest to say that we don't all deal with that in some ways. It might be different categories. Some people 
really despise Democrats. Some people really despise Republicans. Some people really despise people of different skin color or lifestyle, homeless people, people with certain sicknesses and deformities, whatever. You add it. You pick it out. Some people really despise. Everybody's despicable you is different. So you can say, well, I've conquered that one. I got, I'm, 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 I'm really loving in this category. Well, what about the other categories? Well, that's, didn't know you knew about that one. So, we're human. And the fact is, some sort of prejudice is natural to human nature. It's actually preservative in a real world, but, uh, but at some point, we're caused to cross those lines, reach out to somebody, and explain to them not only God's love, but our love, and then do it in some sort of manifested way. The drowning person can only get into the boat with the help from somebody already in it. Might be you today. So, I think a challenge here for us is just to remember at this Christmas season all of the right topics are out and about. Joy, love, kindness, mercy, compassion. They're all there out and about. But when they come home to roost is when somebody in your life, somebody that God brought across your path really needs an expression of love then we're tested. Then we can follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. Well, I, for one, am really glad that Jesus volunteered for that job. And it's efficient. And that it worked. I'm really glad of that. Are you? That's the grace of God reaching out to us. Not only with what Jesus did on the cross, but with how Jesus lived and how he came to earth in the first place. This is all a package of God's expression of an elegant solution to the problem of separation of God and us because of the tainting of sin that built the gap. The bridge has been provided. Father, we are so grateful that in your love, your compassion, and your knowledge, you bridge the gap. You sent Jesus. Thank you for the beautiful story of the Incarnation. But we understand from what we learn in today's passages that um, this was costly to Jesus. Jesus, thank you for identifying with sin, darkness, despair, failure, all of the things that you didn't need for yourself. Thank you for identifying with us, in other words. Thank you for making the message so clear and personal that we can respond. We want to respond today. We want to respond Jesus, by intentionally reaffirming that you are our Savior, our personal connection to God. But also we want you, Jesus, to live in us and show us how to manifest your love to the people around us. And so we'll keep it going. We'll pay it forward. We'll share voluntarily and by initiative with those around us. In Jesus' name we ask, Father, for your blessing. Amen. This is